Hokimai Ano, welcome back to the panel with Lynn Freeman and for Wallace Chapman. Well, this hour, if you just can't afford skyrocketing insurance policies, what are your options? The Mayor of Nelson joins us as the latest torrential rain threatens to bring more misery to the flooded region. Anxiety has been identified as one of the big contributors to this country's truancy crisis. Are our schools equipped to help students to cope with what's been described as an anxiety epidemic? Tougher penalties for freedom campers who break the rules are part of a bill introduced to Parliament today. And today's talking point, will you be voting in the upcoming local body elections? If not, why not? If you are, how much research are you prepared to do ahead of casting your vote? into the contenders' credentials. We're also wondering if you think this year's kiwifruit harvest tastes like bland potatoes. It's a quote we saw. Let us know. Text 2101 or email the panel at rnz.co.nz. I was looking at one of our panellists today because I think, Connor, you'll have a view on that. Connor English, uh, Director of Silver Eye Communications and former CEO of Federated Farmers. And with me also today on the panel, Paula Penfold, a journalist with Stuff Circuit. Right, it's nine minutes past four. With insurance premiums and the cost of living set to keep soaring, more people are having to decide if they just take the risk, forego paying the policies and hope that nothing will happen. Those on fixed incomes like superannuitants and beneficiaries are especially vulnerable. But as with what's happening at the top of the South Island right now reminds us, more weather-related disasters await us due to climate change. With us now is Tom Hartman, personal finance lead at Sorted. Kia ora, Tom. Kia ora. Do we get any... Do we get any sense that New Zealanders are, are moving away from buying insurance? I was looking at some figures from something like four years ago, and they didn't look too flash then. Yeah, we regularly get people writing in, um, you know, asking whether it's something they should keep or, or not as budgets tighten, as you say. Does this, if we are reluctant, make us vulnerable, especially given that we live on shaky aisles and climate change is happening? Well, an important thing to know is that there's a bit of a lag with insurance in, in general. And what I mean by that is that people um, take a little bit longer than they should in order to get it. You know, uh, typically we should get it a little bit younger than we do, but also we tend to hold on to it. So I'm particularly thinking about uh, retirees here who may have gotten, for example, uh, insurance earlier on when they had, um, uh, um, you know, when their families were younger in order to, uh, for example, cover for their children if something happened uh, to them. But as uh, children uh, grow, no longer are dependent, are, are independent, and, you know, there's no need for that product. And so we, we tend to keep it a bit too long sometimes. Insurance is, you know, the way we know best to weather financial storms. But, but I mean, does insurance make sense? for everyone, for all retirees, for example? Not, not always. So it's, it's important to know that, um, like any product, any product we buy, it has to work for us and it ha- has to continue uh, being useful for what we're using it for. And, and so um, really, like, for example, if we're subscribed to Netflix and we're not using it and we're not watching it anymore, there's no point in keep paying for it. But often we do, you know, it just, uh, just sort of rolls over. And the other thing is that, you know, insurances are so configurable that there's no reason we can't go back to an advisor, for example, and make sure that it actually fits our circumstances. It covers the risks that we're really running uh, in our lives. Yeah, good advice, because there's a lot of small print, and I will put my hand up and say I'm not always reading it before I sign the contract for my insurance policies, but then I'm risk-averse. So I, I can't imagine life without it, because I I'm also glass half empty, so I'm always believing that something bad's going to happen. 
Well, um, you know, if you, you can look a little bit at, at the statistics also to understand, you know, how often uh, does this happen. So, for example, uh, uh, for a female between the ages of 18 and 65, there's a 7% chance, you know, you know that they, they might die, 5% chance that you might become disabled. So that's, that's kind of what insurance is, is there for. We're carrying a certain amount of risk. It's not an unlimited amount of risk, so the glass isn't entirely empty. But there is a certain amount, and therefore, in order to get that peace of mind, insurance is there really to, to pull that risk, transfer it into a company in order to carry it for us. Tom, stay with us. I'd like to invite the panel into the conversation. Connor, would you um, ever consider going without insurance? Uh, well, it depends on the insurance. I mean, it is about managing risk and how much you're prepared to um, uh, take risk yourself. Uh, we're lucky here in New Zealand, for example, with accidents. We've got ACC, which I think is a brilliant scheme, which um, you know we do pay for through through levies and, and things like that. But on medical insurance, um, you know, you can choose to to pay for that or, or, or not. Personally, I do, uh, and it's been very helpful for me in my you know dealing with a bit of cancer and stuff. Um, so um, I wouldn't not want to have insurance. Uh, but the best thing about insurance is if you never have to use it and your premiums are a massive waste of money because that means you haven't had something adverse happen to you either physically or to, to your house or your body or your life. Um, so, you're a glass half full kind of person, Well, aren't I, you? I, I, I love it if you're not claiming insurance. Um, you know, that's great. Keep playing the premiums and, and, and claim nothing from it. I think that's brilliant. Paula, what about you? Do you take the time to think about your policies, update them, shop around, maybe ditch one that's no longer relevant? Your timing is perfect because about a year ago I reassessed my insurances and changed from the company that I'd been with for ages um, to save about $1,000 across my house contents and car. But I'm currently um, dealing with trying to get um, a claim processed <laughs> and it's been, I don't know, two months now. They've not even replied to my last five emails. So we talk about a service, you know, they're very happy to take your money. Uh, it's a very straightforward claim for not even very much money, and I just hear nothing from them. So I can see why people are resistant to spending the money when you actually have done that, but get nothing on your return. It's extremely frustrating. Tom, I also was talking to a friend the other day who's who's a big fan of upping the excess as she gets older to reduce the annual premium. Is that something that you would suggest people think about? Yeah, so that's one way of configuring insurance. Again, it's got to work for our budgets. An insurance advisor, for example, might sell you the – it happened to me. They, they sold me the Rolls-Royce version, and actually I was only looking for the Toyota version. That's really all, really all I needed. And one way to make sure it fits your budget is to alter the excess. And what you're doing there is saying, well, I'm going to cover a little bit more, but for bigger things I'm going to have, still have the company in place in order to have that coverage. And the other thing I'd also mention is the role of an insurance advisor. The one thing that a lot of people don't understand is that their role is also to help you make a claim when it's uh, necessary. Their job is to march that claim through the system and make sure it pays out. And so to have a really good insurance advisor on your side, that's, that's a, one of the th- parts of their job. Forgive me if this is um, out of your wheelhouse, but I did wonder, and this conversation happened after the Christchurch earthquakes, I remember, that for those people who weren't insured, there was a lot of conversation about whether 
there should be some form of insurance for them, you know, whether they should be protected. And there were arguments saying, but if we do that, then it's a disincentive for people to have insurance and it's not fair on the people who did pay the insurance. I'm not sure if you remember that or if you have any views on it. Yeah, no, I don't have any views on that. I'd have to look into the circumstances a lot better and, of course, consult the experts. But again, that is what's really needed in this field of insurance and what you're doing when you're working with an insurance advisor. Because it's so configurable, the insurance advisors are the ones who can really say whether it's working for us or not. Thank you so much for your time, Tom. That's Tom Hartman, Personal Finance Lead at Sorted. It's 17 minutes past four. Well, almost one in five young people meet the criteria for an anxiety disorder, according to the Ministry of Health. One in five. Educators are saying many are too anxious to come to school now, which is contributing to the rise in truancy. It's called a crisis. Sarah Maindonald is the president of the New Zealand Association of Counsellors. She also has some 30 years' experience as a school counsellor. Sarah, kia ora, welcome. Kia ora. Now, you won't be surprised in any way about the increased truancy due to more children struggling with social anxiety. Could we have predicted this years ago? Well, I think there's been an increase in, in mental health across the world, and obviously with the pandemic, that's increased in the adult population, and so we do have a parallel increase for young people. Um, with COVID, I think it, it's sort of exacerbated uh, for, for students that have had prior trauma, certainly in Christchurch, you know, with the earthquakes and the terrorist attack, we've, got, we've had layers of experiences that young people have been exposed to. Um, I think that makes it worse if people have got learning disabilities or some um, social um, concerns, then sometimes that makes them more anxious. So they, then they avoid stressful situations. And unfortunately for some, schools are a very stressful experience. And so many anxious children will simply feel afraid to leave the safety of home. That's where they feel the most safe and venture into schools, right? Yes, Definitely. And certainly in my personal experience, after the first lockdown, obviously I can't talk about individual children, but if I talk about generic such responses, um, some people, you know, that might have been transitioning into year nine, might have been finding that quite hard in terms of, you know, coming to high school, forming new friendships, get through the first term, and then suddenly they're they're locked out and, and, you know, they almost have to start that whole process again and might just want to hide out at home. This must also put pressure on whānau, on families who are trying to ensure that the young ones feel safe but also be very concerned about their education. Definitely. And, and obviously, you know, families have to earn a living. So often you've got parents who are quite stressed because they're trying to get back to work. But with teenagers who aren't wanting to go to school in the morning, it's, you know, a lot of people realise it's a pretty stressful scenario. Um, and they are. They're torn between wanting to support their child if they're not feeling, you know, well to go to school or they're feeling anxious, but um, also realising that if they're missing out, you know, even missing out one day a week, that means a fifth of their education. So it's really concerning. Paula, do you have any family experience or, or know of families who are struggling with anxiety? I mean, I've got to say in my family, and I've got a, a big generation of great nieces and nephews, a substantial proportion of them suffer with anxiety to some degree. So I'm hugely aware of this issue. So am I. I think a, it's a really, yeah, very common issue, and it's, it is, it's very concerning. Paula? I was going to say, um, yeah, I, I concur. I see it um, everywhere. And it, as to that notion that it might be some kind of 
uh, weakness is probably too strong a word, but lack of resilience amongst this generation. I, I reject that. I just think that the pressures that they're facing at the moment are, are so many compared to what we have in the past. Um, social media is an obvious one, but the, the combination of the things that they're facing is is extreme in many instances. And so, yes, I'm seeing it everywhere, and I don't think it's um, I don't think there's anything to be gained by kind of casting blame towards those who are experiencing it. Connor, any questions for Sarah on this? Uh, yeah, look, just on the truancy thing, um, I think in the media the other day there was, you know, figures of 46% or something of kids turning up. Uh, uh, are we saying that, that over 50% of kids are away from school because of anxiety? Is that is that what we're saying? Is that the situation, as you said? Uh, I- I haven't looked at that particular statistic. That seems very high. Um, I do think there's been quite an increase, you know, since lockdown. Um, yep. I think what we need is, you know, we need more support for young people. Like a lot of high schools haven't had any increase in their tagged funding for counselling, for example, since 1995. <laughs> you know, there used to be tagged um, funding sort of rubric for high schools to to be able to see see students but now there's often one counsellor to you know a thousand they might have to wait for a week to even get in to see a counsellor so if a lot of students are anxious and might make that first step towards getting help you know they give up (laughs) and then if it's something that needs to be beyond the school system the waiting times in terms of getting any treatment in the public system are so long now aren't they that you know some of them just give up there too that's true. But I do believe, you know, we do need to get in early. So if we can get good counselling support and wellbeing education and, you know, wraparound help for families, if we get that in early in primary and intermediate schools and then have good supports in high school, then we have, you know, children learn to seek help. It's all about, you know, having good therapeutic relationships with children because they're not going to reveal their deepest anxieties to someone that's just going to say, oh, harden up, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which is a good New Zealand kind of... Um, saying isn't it that we're all familiar with but actually it doesn't help I think whoever was speaking before you know about um, we do have to take this seriously and people have got very real concerns and they're dealing with climate change the war in Ukraine and you know child brain doesn't have the same capacity as an adult to cope with um, processing those level of problems. Yeah, the, the advice I got from my parents was sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Names actually do, as we know now. Are schools, are yeah, schools that can't cope, oh, Sarah, do you think, aren't, well, not can't cope, but aren't able to help students with anxiety adequately, even if the will is there, even if the teachers and the principal want to? Because the sort of numbers you were giving us, maybe one trained counsellor for a thousand kids, that's impossible. Well... They do their very best, but yeah, we end up putting out fires rather than being able to do that wraparound work, you know, liaise with families. I mean, certainly when I started counselling, you know, this was before the earthquakes, we were much more able. I think we had one to, one counsellor, I remember having about 60 young people on my caseload in a term, and... Um, and after the earthquakes, it went, you know, 1 to 90, and it never really went down. So I do think if you have more qualified staff who can uh, work effectively with those students, um, you know, it can help. We're looking at 1 to 400, the New Zealand Association of Counsellors. That's what we are lobbying for, that there's one counsellor for 400 children. Are you hopeful? We are persistent. <laughs> <laughs> Persistence is great. Um, Paul, any, any last questions for Sarah before we let her go? And she's, she's making time for us today, which I'm really grateful for. 
What do you hear? Do you have advice for parents who are dealing with an anxious child about the, you know, the very first response when they come to you with their concerns? Well, I think just to listen, you know, really listen and, um, you know, sorry, there's a phone going off in the building. Um, I think you yeah, just to be really present with your child, take them seriously, because we don't know either what's behind it. You know, sometimes children come with a small thing and actually there's a bullying thing happening at school or there's a learning issue or there's somewhere they don't feel safe. So I think, yeah, listening to children, but being sensible, you know, not indulging them, you know, to stay home every day of the week. Mm. (laughs) You know, sometimes scaffolding, saying, well, I'll come with you to the gate. Or what do you need to stay in three classes out of five, you know, if if you can negotiate with a pastoral care team. So you're breaking it down, sort of desensitising, but really good to do with a professional because, you know, if people have got um, an anxiety disorder, they're going to need specialised help. Sarah MacDonald, Kaikite, thank you so much for your time. It's 25 past four. Connor, what have you been thinking? Uh, I've been thinking um, about uh, cash flow and um, and our export stats, actually, that came out um, the other day. Did it make for grim reading? Uh, no, oh. no, it made for very good reading. But, you know, right now we've got a lot of um, pressures uh, on cash flow for businesses and, and for the country and, and actually for families. Uh, and we need positive cash flow if we want to live happy lives. Um, and there's a lot of people, I think, out there who are going to come off uh, low fixed-rate mortgages over the next uh, you know, 12 months or so, and they're going to have a reset of their interest rates at twice the rate that they're paying now, sort of 2.5% to, to 5% in, in general uh, terms, and that's going to have a massive impact on, on those families. Uh, businesses, we've got increased, um, increased costs coming from everywhere, including interest rate costs. That's putting pressure on the businesses and on their working capital. And, of course, the country itself, you know, we've got a bit more debt. And the cost of that debt is is increasing. So you look at all these uh, pressures on cash flow and then you sort of go, well, someone's got to, you know, earn some money to pay for this. Uh, so it's great to see our agriculture sector um, mm-hmm. putting their shoulder to the wheel uh, with the New Zealand food and fibre exports um, in the year of June. Uh, came out with a record $53.3 billion of exports. Uh, and so meat and dairy, you know, they added on another $1.1 billion on onto on that. Uh, and overall, um, you know, food and fibre exports made up over 80% of New Zealand's uh, total exports uh, for the year. So I just think it's, um, it's a really challenging time cash-wise uh, right across um, the country. Uh, but it's great that the ag and rural sectors are working, you know, pretty jolly hard to earn some cash for the country uh, so we can pay some bills and, and, and uh, playing their part well. Paula, what are you thinking about that? I just wonder what, what it means. Food and fibre, I take it, is like meat and wool, right? The fibre part is is that, wool and the like? Yeah, and that that's that's primary sector, so that includes um, horticulture and seafood and uh, and I think timber would be in those numbers too, I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. Go our farmers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go so no, our agricultural sector. Yeah. yeah, it's a tricky environment in so many respects at the moment, but yeah, we need to pay the bills, don't we? Exactly. We'll come back to kiwifruit because they're not having <laughs> such a great year in a moment. But today's talking point, as I mentioned, about voting in the upcoming local body elections. I was looking at some really depressing statistics uh, just the other day. Um, so if you don't vote, why don't you vote? If you do vote, are you prepared to do the hard yards? Do your research, read the little booklet, uh, which is how I do it, um, ahead of casting your vote into the contenders' credentials. And um, if you don't vote, do you feel you have the um, right 
to complain for the next three years. What's your view on this? Paula, are you a voter? Um, it's that's always a tricky one as a journalist because um, I'm not asking you who you vote for. No, and I'm not going to be very careful. That's right. <laughs> what I would say is to um, absolutely encourage people to vote in our local body elections. Uh, I'd encourage people to consider it more than ever before because of this some of the destabilisation that we're seeing in terms of trying to erode the democratic process at local body level. Um, with some organisations supporting their uh, members to run for councils without declaring their affiliation. So I think more than ever, it is our civic responsibility to do our research into people before you vote for them. Find out what they stand for. If you can't find it out in any kind of public domain, then ask them. (laughs) Literally send them an email or approach them and ask them. And they... Um, if they can't tell you, then they don't deserve to have your vote. I, I think it's massively important that people engage in their civic duty to vote. Connor, I'm assuming, given what you were telling us before about your wife standing, um, that you have strong views on this too, right? Oh, I think people should absolutely vote. Um, it's a privilege uh, to be able to vote, and it's a privilege mm-hmm. to live in a democracy. And, you know, we've had people who fought in wars to give us that privilege. Uh, so I think not voting is is just not on. We've had suffragettes um, too, you know, fighting for the right, exactly, right to vote. Too, exactly. Right? You know, we're the first country in the world to have women have the vote, and, and that's fantastic. And, and so um, I think we should all vote. If we don't vote, we, we can't complain. It's not hard to do. It's ticking a box. It's not a big physical uh, thing to do. But I do take the point about making an informed vote. Uh, and having some transparency around what people's views may or may not be. I think that is that is important. Uh, and, and again, I think for candidates, it's um, how do they get exposure to present their views? And, you know, you can use social media and websites. And um, I know, like here in Wellington, there was meet the, meet the candidate meetings uh, in the sort of local halls, a sort of town hall meeting type type thing, which are actually a lot of fun. Um, they, they, uh, can get pre- oh, they can get pretty, pretty um, lonely, can't they? They can get very <laughs> low, particularly in Arrow Valley. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so, yeah, so absolutely, I think, uh, 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 I can't stand it when people don't vote. I say to our kids, I don't care who you vote for, but never, ever tell me that, that you haven't voted. Just and the, it's such a, the, the complacency is worse at local body level, obviously. And the risk of that, of course, as we've already seen, is that there are people elected uncontested because there are uh, a fewer people than positions. So uh, the, the lack of engagement, I think people forget that that level of democracy is so fundamentally important to how we live our lives. Well, I hope we can do better than the 2019 local body elections. Overall voted turnout was about 42 Well, well, I think the other thing too is is that um, people don't fully understand how important local government is. Mm -hmm. They're dealing with a lot of things that impact our lives on a daily basis. Uh, Everything from, uh, you know, environmental resource management, um, you know, air quality, uh, bus services, roads, libraries, parks... uh, our rates that we pay if we're a homeowner or, you know, you pay it through your rent one way or the other. Um, So there's actually a lot of things that they do and a lot of functions they perform which are really important to our society and our community. And I think sometimes, you know, there's a bit of a negative view taken of local government. Um, You know, so they need to... um, I think we need to have more positive stories about local government rather than just negative stories. Sounds like a good start. 28 minutes to five, a little late to the news headlines.